0: not much but i'm all think about 24 hours a day my name is david cunningham and i'm an
1: alcoholic yeah.
0: apparently i was born an alcoholic wasn't given a choice in the matter didn't uh, volunteer for alcoholism for my family it is hereditary and i did not find that out till i got here and the gentleman who ran the recovery home said, so who's the alcoholic in the family? And my mother, who's checking me in, says, yeah, his, my husband's father died of alcoholism. He died dr- uh, drinking while taking abuse back in the 1950s. So I never met him. So apparently I'm not the first in my family, but I am the first crackhead in my family. I got that going. Hold on, let me uh, start a timer thing here. Shelly, you ready for this? <laughs> Shit, let me stop. Greg was still speaking on my Very timer. reset. Congratulations to our birthday people tonight. Uh, two of them, that's awesome. You know, I, I had the pleasure of uh, spending time with Mr. Ayers this morning at morning meeting and breakfast and being of service to the party you guys went to today. That's my life today, you know? I got dogs, laundry, housekeeping, being of service to friends and family. That's not how my life was for the uh, majority of the decade of the 1980s. I was born in 1959, back in uh, Buffalo, New York. Dad was with GE at the time, so we were up north and it was cold. And I have no remembrances of that. How recently, however, though, my mother, who's was 89, was talking at a party and she talked about how the doctor told her to put the carriage out in the backyard if, you know, it's good for the kids. So at like five or six months, she would roll me out into the freezing winters of Buffalo because the doctor, my mother's nuts to this day, but this was like a story. And my son was standing there and he's like, how could you do that? Apparently, you know? Mothers who have kids don't really know what to do with them. The doctor says, give them some fresh air. So she put me in the backyard. These are things (laughs) you, if you stay sober long enough, you get to find out these stories from your family. Anyway, the oldest of four boys. uh, We lived well. I grew up in a small town in New Jersey, Chatham, New Jersey. uh, About 35 miles due west of uh, where the trade towers used to be. Because we used to be able to see them out our window, up on the third floor. I had had everything I needed as a kid, other than I was like the youngest in my class, and I was small, and I was skinny. And in the 1970s, there was a show called Happy Days, and my last name is Cunningham. So what happened used to be, I would get grabbed like this and nuggied, Cunningham, all the time. That was what I wanted to be part of. I wanted to fit in with the in crowd. You know, you hear that a lot in these rooms. You just—I uh, didn't know how to to fit in. And I just wanted to be a part of the, the jock group. You know, I was I was okay, but they let me hang out and whatnot. Um, like I said, I had three younger brothers. Uh, none of them have been afflicted, thankfully, with this. I mean, everybody, as we go through life, has their own things, but they don't have what I have, and that's alcoholism. And I didn't know what alcoholism was till I got here. And I learned from the people here what it was. And, it, and then I was 29 when I got here, and I'd go to meetings in Laguna Beach. Laguna Beach was a hotbed of sobriety back in the 1980s. And you'd walk in there, and I was, I was, uh, I was all of 145 pounds and they had just brought me in from uh, downtown Los Angeles where I like to hang out, smoke crack, and work. I worked at the car wash in the Westwood. I'm getting ahead of myself. The 1960s in this country was full of turmoil. So what the nightly news looked like was assassination of the president, his brother, the leading black guy that talked about peace and war, that was, not, that was our childhood. Oh, and if you were at school, we used to have what they call the duck and cover. Now, when the Russians bombed us, you were supposed to grab your ankles and stick your head under your desk, and that would save you, and we had duck and cover that was That was one through 10 for me, okay? But something else happened in the 1960s too that I saw, and I saw these people that were young and they were happy and they were doing drugs and they were free. They were free, the hippies. I wanted to be a hippie. I wanted to be like them. I was like, damn, I was born 10 years too late. All this stuff was happening. All this stuff was going on and I wanted to be part of that. Uh, drinking is a normal thing amongst most uh, nationalities in the town that I grew up in, uh, Italians and the Irish. Uh, It was well okay when you were 14, 15 years old, if you went to their houses, their parents parents would give you a beer or two or three and you'd go to the basement and play pool or whatever. And uh, so drinking was a very normal thing because everybody did it. And I would look around and I'd say, successful looking guys with the pink shirts and the green pants and the red noses at the bar, at the country club. What are they drinking? And then they were drinking this ugly stuff It turned out to be Scotch. And I'm like, I have to learn how to like to drink that. My first drink was probably a beer I stole from my dad on a winter camp out in Boy Scouts or something at age 14 or 15, didn't do anything for me. I knew I had to drink it to fit in. And you had to drink it because that's what everybody did. We drank. Everybody drank. Drinking was very normal then. Uh, the drinking age where I grew up was 18. I, uh, like I said, I lived about 35 miles outside of uh, New York City. So we would take the train into New York, go see concerts in New York, go to bars in New York. You know, age 16, I was a real young-looking 16, but they had no problem serving me pitchers of beer at any, any bar in New York. I got thrown out of my first bar when I was 16 for smoking a joint in the bar, not for drink, being underage drinking. And, and they didn't make me leave immediately. They were like, well, when you finish that pitcher, you have to go. <laughs> <laughs> and the people in the tables around, the older people, like, "Get pouring more. Beer. We sold that. That was a thing back East, going to New York and doing damn near anything you wanted to. There was just a lot of freedom. It wasn't far away, I mean, When we you're able to drive, we drove into the city. Um, I mentioned last time I spoke here at 10 minute that I, I've been thrown out of almost everywhere or asked to leave. And New York City had, I was asked to leave there, but I could have been asked to leave New York City so many more times so many more times. The last time that I went to St. Patrick's Day in New York City, yeah. I, uh, we ended up taking the train in by 8 a.m. and we were hammered and peeing in the middle of the street by 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. I ended up in a blackout and at my former college about five hours west of
1: there when I woke up the next day and the party just went on and on and on. I got thrown
0: out of prep school. This is after high school. So my parents thought it was a great idea to bring my grades up because I didn't get in where I wanted to. And uh, I turned 18. I turned 18 after high school. So I was finally legal to drink and I did. And it was fun. I had a lot of fun. Uh, I was up at the uh, Vermont Academy in Southern Vermont. And all that was, was a school for kids to go skiing and drink
1: at. And I was perfect for that. The bus left every day for the mountain at 1130. And that was a great
0: year until my roommate got caught smoking pot in the room and I was collateral damage. Not that I wouldn't have been smoking, but I was sleeping at the time, but since I was there. So I got thrown out of there. I got thrown out of New York City by the cops. I got thrown out of college that I went to twice. The first time there was a list of, uh, it was probably four or five, maybe more items that I had done. One of them was throwing a death party. One of them was throwing a burning couch out of my fraternity, uh, fraternity house on the second floor. One of them was, most of them had to do with me instigating something because I am an instigator. And, uh, they really had nothing on me, but they were trying to pin stuff on me. And the gentleman, the dean got so upset with me that I stood up and I walked out to his secretary and asked for another appointment when I could come back when he was more calm, which I knew would just send him through the roof. So I got the, le- I got the letter and uh, you're suspended, you're suspended. But my family had good connections. And so I ended up working for a uh, New Jersey State Assemblywoman Leanna Brown she's long she's since passed now I can mention her name I was her driver and I would take her to different political events all around New Jersey well so she could study up on the next place we're going to and she was amazing she could work a barbecue and talk to everybody and remember what their kids names were and little Johnny played softball just it was a fantastic thing my job was to get her uh, tonic waters with a slice of lime and I would uh have rum and cokes because it was open bar. so as I was driving, I would just take black beauties to make sure that I was okay. And I did that for the, uh, it was the Reagan campaign of 1979, no, 80, whenever Reagan got elected. I remember being at Reagan headquarters in my green pants and pink shirt and blue blazer with with a bow tie, uh, a bowler hat, singing happy days are here again, and I thought I had made it. That connection alone was good enough to get me back in school, which I went to, and promptly failed out with a zero, zero, zero. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I knew there was something wrong. I, I didn't, for the life of me, know why I couldn't, I couldn't do anything anymore, except for drink and party, and I was really good at that. By this time we'd started touring with the Grateful Dead as, we, as often as possible. So whenever they came through, we jumped on board. But I, you hear the expression, I had a hole in my gut and the wind was blowing through. And I remember calling my dad, I said, Dad, I can't do this anymore. I don't know what's wrong, but I need to go. I need to get out of here. And of course he didn't know what to do. You know, it was just a normal dad. Didn't have to deal with anything like us before. Now, side note, He passed uh, two years ago and then at a family gathering, I'd mentioned, yeah, I never saw dad cry. My brother stepped in and goes, yeah, when he found out when you were on crack, he was crying. And I'm like, oh, man, this is what we put our families through. Now, fortunately, I lit out for the coast because that's what people did. At age 23, I've been here since, so I've been here 40 years now. At age 23, I scooted out and I ended up in the, at a dead show that lasted a week up in Oakland. It was their New Year's shows and it was the pinnacle of all the drug dealing in America. It was. It was just fun for a week and then he slept. And then I was like, now what? I remember I had a fraternity brother down in Santa Monica. So I came down this, I hitchhiked down this way. And I got here in like a day, it was great. I stayed there and he's like, dude, you can't stay here. It's my brother's place. So I ended up at UCLA at my fraternity house. And once again, I was back amongst friends. They had a keg every night. I could stay here for a while. I got my first job in California at a stationery store in 1983. And uh, that was the beginning. I got sober in 1989. I've been sober since, uh, I, I've stayed sober since 1990, 5, 11, 90. But I started getting sober in 1989. In the decade of the 80s, uh, saw
1: me living in my car. Uh, so we, we, back up again. A bunch of us
0: ended up in uh, Hermosa Beach. Where somebody had a big accident settlement. We had a house at the, on the Strand and it was just on. I worked at a liquor store up at Fireside Liquors up in Brentwood, and I enjoyed working at liquor stores because they had three things I needed, booze, food, and cash, and four things, cigarettes. All these items were mine. (laughs) And my paycheck I would sign over too because I would also pay for items I took home. So my job at this party house was to bring home bags of liquor every night, which I did. But I would take the bus. That's a two-hour bus ride from Brentwood down to Hermosa Beach. But when all the money ran out in Hermosa Beach, one, my one buddy went to jail. Another one just disappeared. Another one went back east. And there I was. I was living in a 1960 Rambler above the, uh, above the state beach in, in uh, Santa Monica there on the Palisades overlooking the water. So I had an ocean view, except I was petrified. I couldn't go back. I had burned all my bridges. And even if I didn't, I, my thinking says you can't go back. You can't go back. So there I was, what did I do each day? Well, I started that car up and I went down to the beach and parked and I was terrified. I didn't know what to do. I knew I could go get, get a bottle every now and then and smoke pot, but that wasn't really like, that was just a daily existence. I think I did that for four or five months. And then I found, I said, well, I need to get another job in a liquor store. That's what, that's, that's what I need so I can steal. So besides being self-centered and self-seeking, I'm a liar, cheat, and a thief. All day. Okay, that's the only way I knew how to play. And I always thought I was this really nice guy, and it may well have been, but it was hidden underneath my alcoholism. I went for a job at the cashier at the Westwood Car Wash in 1984, something like that. And he says, oh, you know, well, we're going to put you out front, wiping down cars. Now, I come from a, a well, well-to-do background. I'm like, wiping down cars? Wait a minute. What's, what do you mean? I had never met any Mexicans before, but it was all Mexicans in me. And I was just really being high and mighty about it. And they. Looked at me and go, what the hell is this? What the hell is this crazy white boy? Turns out they drank like I drank. The Munoz family, there were four of them there. They're all dead now, all dead from this. I saw two of them die while I was there. I was there for five years. I was at the Westwood car wash for five years. Dad went to Yale, mom went to Harvard. David's at the Westwood car
1: wash. (laughs)
0: I enjoyed it. I had money every day. Every day, I worked six days a week. I had tips. I had, let's say I made hundred bucks a day. That was plenty. You know, I had no no bills, nothing. I could drink. I'd go to local bars. You could do cocaine at the car wash because the guy who wrote the tickets sold it. You could drink all day at the car wash because there was a 7-Eleven next to it. And if you needed hard liquor, there was a Vendome just across the street. And the oldest Munoz, little, little Jose, would say, boy, they call me boy. Boy, go get me pint. I'd give him a pint and pour it in his big gulp. With me. He'd start hitting it at 8 in the morning. And I'd go, you
1: have some of that. Oh.
0: So every now and then, I'd help him with that. But the rest of us just drank beer all day long. You know, I'd call back east and I'd tell everybody how well I was doing, how great life is, and blah, 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 every lie you can think of. And the more we tell lies, the more we have to put in us to keep down the emotions and the thoughts and the feelings. So in 1986, I discovered the most evil thing on planet Earth, and that's crack. Because... I could stop drinking, but I never really tried. You know, if I could, if he made me or something, but I couldn't stop doing that. And that took every ounce out of me, every ounce. It takes all you have and all you can borrow and then all you can steal. And I don't know how you got to the rooms about Alcoholics Anonymous or what criminal shit or nasty things you've done. I've either done them or I've thought of doing them. Let your mind run wild with that, okay? (laughs) I'm no better, I'm no worse than anybody here. That's not what I knew when I got here. You know, when I got here, I was an egomaniac with an inferiority complex when I got here.
1: And I was less than you. If I had to act good around you, I could do that, I could do that.
0: But I never felt comfortable doing that at all. And the further down you get from doing this, the, the more you put in, the more, the more hopeless it is, the more, you know, there's no way out. I never knew there was a way out of this. I got my first drunk driving in 1985. I ended up out in the desert, somewhere between Palm Springs and Indio, upside down in a car and I came to out of a blackout. I was the driver because the other gentleman was too drunk to
1: drive. And he wasn't there. I looked over. He was missing. A few minutes later, they came and they pulled
0: me out. And I'm like, where's, where's Jeff? Where's, uh, he's, I think they took him off. He, he got thrown out of the car. And I don't even know if I had a seatbelt on. I doubt it but I was just upside down, just the dust just flying in the air. They took me to jail that night. And I think some, somewhere in there, they uh, probably sentenced me to go to AA or to alcohol uh, school, whatever they call it, AB 52. It was called back then. <clears throat> we had to do a year and a half or a year or something like that. And I, I never did that. Because why? Because why? But, the consequence for not doing that is they would show up at the Westwood Car Wash and it would be, are you David? Click, Cunningham, click and haul me off. Now they let me go the next morning. So it was like a catch and release program for minor affairs and you know, because I knew, I knew if they sent me here, he'd make me stand up and say, I'm an alcoholic. I knew it. I don't know how I knew it. Maybe I saw it on TV. This is the thing I feared most. Because I knew it was true. To my innermost self, which I had never acknowledged, I'm an alcoholic.
1: And I didn't really know that. My second DUI
0: was uh, after drinking at the car wash, after, they allowed us to hang out there after work and drink. It, it, we'd play cards and throw dice and everything. And there was a local uh, Hispanic gang that uh, took me in, too, because they like the Varela family. Most of them are dead or in jail. This is a this is a long time ago. But, you know, it's it's like any old Western. You you let the crazy white guy hang out with you just because, you know, you know, he's harmless. It's harmless. He's funny. Keep him around. So uh, one of them said, so, I'll drive, I'll go home, you know, I'll drive you home, because I do, I was too drunk to drive, so we drove from uh, Westwood down to, uh, what, Manhattan Beach exit, and I was like, oh, get off the freeway, I know how to get there better than you from here, so let me drive, next thing I know, there's helicopters, dogs, and squad cars everywhere, that was my second DUI, and that did not bring me to here either, even though that was the That was the formula, DUI, Drunk Driving School, Alcoholics Anonymous. So I had to sign up for AA. I had to sign up for the Drunk Driving School. I remember coming out of the projects. Now, Greg spoke about seeking lower companions and being like being in the projects. I loved being in the projects. There's projects up in LA and I would be the only pale face for many a mile. And I would hole up there for days until the money ran out in which case then it was time to go. I remember leaving there just so high and I had to, like by five o'clock I had to pay a fine or something. They're like, okay, you're finally made it in here to pay us. I never made it to Alcoholics Anonymous from that either. My first AA meeting was up in West LA somewhere because one of the Hispanic gang members had to go. We stood in the back drinking beer. And we were just gassing on them and saying, this is a bunch of crap. Da, 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 da. Let's get
1: out of here. That, that was my first A. I mean, it was. Uh, things took a turn for the worse. The
0: later it got in the 1980s. Because... By now, I could no longer hold it together and live in Manhattan Beach. I'd be living down in the Pico Union District of Los Angeles. I would, uh, I, I spent, like I said, the gentleman at the car wash took me in and I would live with them. And they didn't speak English, but we all drank. Some of them did drugs. So it was just, it was, just,
1: it was a way of life.
0: And once again, I would call back East and tell, tell my mom and dad how well I'm doing. And, When I went back for vacations, it, it was a welcome break from like, ah, get away from the drugs. I remember one time I was uh, visiting my college girlfriend down in Ocean City, New Jersey. And when, at the after party, after, at, the, at the country club or something like that, the gentleman in the room spoke up and he said, I've been addicted to crack. And my heart jumped up and he goes, ever since I first licked one.
1: And I was like, oh, I thought this was the first person I could talk to. My heart "Boom!" I ended up uh, living in the Barbizon
0: Hotel in downtown Los Angeles for a good six months alone. Actually, SA Tony lived with me for a while because we did drugs together every day. I could hold it together just well enough to get to the car wash. How about that on your card? I'm just good enough to make it here. Cause it was a dollar five from downtown Los Angeles to Westwood each day. And at every day at uh, 12.55 before the liquor store across the street closed, I had to make that decision. Am I saving bus fare for tomorrow or can I get three of those Milwaukee's best for a dollar five, which was the deal. Every day the bus, lost, which means I had to develop a pattern of sneaking onto the bus because it has a front door and a middle door. And what you did was you just kind of launched. When people came out the middle, you just kind of launched in low and got in and got in a seat, and you went to work. And I came home each night,
1: and every day was the same thing, the same thing. (coughs) See the dealer. Get high, try to lie down for a half hour, do it again. I mean, there was a point years earlier when you first started
0: doing cocaine after drinking all night. And you knew you had to go to work the next day and it was coming up on five o'clock and you're just, you're pinned. And then the birds start and he fucking hated those birds. He did. Got to the point early on. I'm like, I made friends with the birds. They were now. I'm like, oh, that's good. That's good. That's how it turns. Things that used to destroy us. Oh, I'm okay with that now. We
1: can do that now. 1989. There was two gentlemen into my hallway.
0: Two big guys. And the sun was behind them. And I'm like, I stepped out and I go, they're here to kill me. I deserve killing. I need to be put down. It was my brother and my best friend who had called my family back east and said, come get him. He's dying. He told me very recently, he's like, Yeah, you know, the code of the the code of the drug addict. You don't narc on each other because I still don't find I did the right thing. My brother says to me, Dad thinks she needs to see a doctor. I'm like, oh. Give all this up?
1: <laughs>
0: I was in a $15 a night hotel room. I'd been there for a very long time. Who knows? I agreed to go tomorrow. But tonight we're gonna smoke crack, right? You got, you got money? Okay, get some beers and crack We'll play chess. I'll show you how smart I am. I whooped his ass. But I did go down to, uh, it was the Los Altos Mental Ward. And I don't even think it's there anymore. So we came down the 110 and then across and went by Marine World, which isn't there anymore. And I drank a few beers there. And then we went to uh, the hospital. And like I said, I was 145 pounds and just crazy, crazy. I had no future. I, I spoke here before and I said, I used to hope for nuclear war. That was the only chance I had to be even with everybody else.
1: again. That was
0: my only chance. I had no hope. So they mentioned to me that there's a thing or like recovery homes you could move into. And this nice Nikki Jansen. Nikki Jansen uh, came in there, pulled me out, took me down to Laguna Beach, California, which I'd never been to. And I'm like, wait, Beach House or Beach View? I I could do this. And Dad's going to pay for it. I'm all about it. Let's do it. I had nothing going on. That was my introduction to Laguna Beach. And I met Jim Nugent that day. And he's the one who said to my mom, who's the alcohol? He set out a program of meetings for me to go to, so it was four AA meetings and three CA meetings. Because he knew he'd been around long enough to know that if alcohol's not your thing, that's okay. But we're going to get you to where they really can help you. Now I was fortunate that this Cocaine Anonymous used exactly these twelve steps, exactly except for the words different: alcohol, crack, cocaine. And since I was also an alcoholic. I was okay at either places, I wasn't real accepted here. The older crowd, except for one man, Joe Quinn. Joe Quinn used to run a big book study in Laguna Beach. And by golly, it was Joe Quinn's meeting, you suited up and showed up and he didn't care who you were. That was my introduction to AA. And uh, there was nothing but love here. Love and, and something I had none of, hope. I had no hope. You know, you hear about people being a miracle in the program. I think everybody hears the miracle. You know? And I was bad-mouthed and say, ah, miracles, a bunch of a bunch of damn religious crap. You know? But I went to a 7 a.m. meeting every day. I went to a night meeting every night, and we had a house meeting. So I went to three meetings a night or three meetings a day for seven months. That's my indoctrination to Alcoholics and I met gentlemen like Greg who was here ahead of me. And yeah, he was a dick down at the end of the street. And uh, you know, Mr. I've been sober for a while. I was going in and out at the recovery home. I was not staying sober. I was not struck sober by the fact that here's relief. Here it is, free. This was my chance to get over And get loaded again. Meet people in these rooms and get loaded with them. Everybody who's been sober long enough will tell you that there's a lot of bodies behind us. Some of them, when you're out there using, some of them that you meet in these rooms that just aren't here anymore.
1: Step one powerless over alcohol and all their mind altering substances. What does that mean? That means that these hands are gonna put things in my mouth and I can't stop them unless I have a power greater than myself.
0: How does that happen? Step two, came to believe that power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Tells me two things. One, A, there's a power out there I could use it.
1: B, I'm fucking insane. That's the fact.
0: Step three, get on your knees. Made a decision. All you do is make a decision. Let me make a decision that I'm gonna
1: look for a power greater than myself to help me. I found a sponsor. When I finally had enough in these rooms, my last drink was at a sober wedding
0: of people, because you you people took me in. I was part of your crowd, and I wanted to show you how much I could drink like a gentleman, and I had three beers at a wedding, and that was it. I didn't want to drink that day, but it was beers. (laughs) <laughs> so that was a Sunday. I didn't drink till Thursday. I went to the Thursday night meeting with the speaker of the meeting. I'm doing things right. And I get home and there's a sound coming from the other bedroom. <sighs> I had no power against the blowtorch or the crack pipe either. I'm powerless. And I went in there and I hit that pipe. And what do you think happened?
1: Nothing. Nothing
0: happened. It was over. I went back to my room, got on my knees, cried, wrote out my first step. Next day, I got that sponsor, became willing to do every damn thing he said. You've heard here tonight, get commitments, read the book, serve others. Love and service is our way. For over 32 years, I've been waiting to blame that man and find a Find a flaw in the 12
1: steps that I could wiggle out of. And I haven't found it yet. And for you gentlemen here that are new tonight, I
0: didn't get struck sober. If this is your first time here, stay. If it's not, keep coming back, no matter what. You know, we talked about miracles in here. And I remember I was blabbering my mouth after I took a year or something, this and that. And I I didn't think it was a miracle. You know, I was just still so consuming with self. And this little gal came up to me, Carla I. And she'd been sober for a few years. And I was like the the mom of the group. And she came up to me, she went, David, you're our miracle. Give me a kiss and walked away. She's a little gal.
1: You're our miracle, and I was floored. I just stood there. Is that the time, shall I? And, uh, well
0: Can yeah. I tell stories about Tim?
1: <laughs> anyway. My first six months of sobriety, I had a
0: commitment every night of the week and it was a coffee commitment. I had seven nights a week coffee. Some of them were, big, were small coffee pots, some were big ones where you're one of three people on that crew like at the Wednesday night meeting when you're on beach. And that's how you meet people in these rooms. That's how you become of service. And I guarded those coffee. You're not getting this coffee. Yeah, it's my commitment, it's how I stayed sober. And I, I got busy in, in service at uh, the group level And I ended up uh, being a delegate in Cocaine Anonymous to to the World Service there, where I ended up on this floor telling the trustees that they had forgotten the attic in the street, they best get it together. I was crazy my first five years here. At three years, I met a a gal uh, working the hotline. And then she tracked me down, told me I was a booty call later on. And uh, there's a couple hours of uh, activity that I can tell you about there, but we're not gonna talk about that tonight. <laughs> Out of the deal, I have a wonderful 24-year-old son. who's never seen his father get loaded. My family has, ne- has been restored to me many times over.
1: Monica, thank you for inviting me to She said, well,
0: we don't want to have any real speakers come down and waste their time on Super Bowl. Sunday. <laughs> and I said, Monica, I'd be glad to be of service to the group.
1: Thanks for listening. Y'all have a great day.